internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Bowell. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order. And Andy, does it feel like it's been a while since we did one of these? Um, a decent amount. It's been three, maybe more than three weeks, yeah. Hmm. feel like there's a rhythm we keep in. There is and... a rhythm we keep in. <laughs> and it's like it's like batch batch shoot a bunch of episodes and then have like four or five weeks where we don't record shit but because they only get released twice a month y'all never get the interruption we get the interruption and it's like what right yeah we haven't missed a deadline yet i don't plan for us to but it's definitely been like scramble 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 get a couple in the can and then we go oh, okay we're good for like the next three episodes and we uh we take a we take a minute <laughs> and because three episodes is a month and a half I, it's funny okay so i've had a couple of conversations with people who have just been like how do you start a podcast like what do you do like what's involved in all of this and i try and i try and be encouraging i try to tell them you know have a good concept at least starting off don't be like those fuckwads in that new york times piece that we yelled about uh i think an episode or two ago you know make sure that you have the ability to record your audio but by no means do you need to have like a high-tech setup but i think the biggest thing is just like have a workable schedule because if you try and do a weekly podcast and you don't have the kind of free time to do a weekly podcast you will fail right because we don't even try to do a weekly podcast we do a bi-monthly podcast and like yeah. i've i've wanted to kind of increase the frequency of episodes to like every two weeks no matter what but but then you we, like we've run into stuff where I sit here and reflect them and like okay if if that was the case we would have missed an episode or we would have had to you know scramble in some way and so it's it's a balancing act you know I think well I mean you you've got another podcast too that's the other thing well that's true and <laughs> if if it makes you feel any better it's been like couple it's been like four weeks since we recorded our last episode and that episode got corrupted <laughs> so we've been we've been like trying for like two months now to to get this episode finalized but also we gave ourselves like six months of runway so <laughs> which is smart i mean i i've been toying around with another project my own self that's just on my own but i'm like i'm not gonna start this officially i'm not gonna advertise i'm not gonna even i'm not gonna do anything with this except for like tool around with the concept until and i'm not gonna release anything until i have i don't know about six months of backlog but six you guys having six months of backlog has helped a lot Indeed. with the last couple of months yep <laughs> i don't know it's it, like i'm not enough of a marketing person to sit here and know how how essential is it that you have regular uploads? I feel like it's pretty essential. I feel like probably if nothing else, it keeps you from just accidentally stopping your project as a whole. But uh, I mean, no, I think the most important thing, as you were saying, was like plan it out properly and be able to to release stuff when you say you will. And if that's weekly, awesome. But if not, you know, just as lo whatever, whatever you decide, meet that deadline. 
and that'll help you. Yeah, I mean, to get into my writing life, uh, I've been I've been fighting, I've been fist fighting with a novel for the last couple of years, and fist uh, fighting with a novel. I love that. Yeah, that's just, and it's I'm losing badly. Um, but, but I have a friend who is a poet who randomly while we were we were grabbing brunch the other week and he said and he was actually talking to stephanie because the two of them are in a writing group together but he was like hey i think i'm gonna do a 30 for 30 poetry writing try and write 30 poems in 30 days do you and he asked stephanie like would you be interested in like doing that challenge with me like i i basically am looking for an email thread i can send to a person for accountability purposes and she's very much like, uh, no, I'm good. I'm kind of got another, I'm kind of working on other projects right now. I don't really think I can commit to that. And I straight up just like looked up from the other side of the car and I just kind of went, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> I shouldn't say that because I've had it, like, it's tricky enough to get the creative projects I do have going on consistently worked on. I'm hitting my bare minimums. But at the same time, I'm like, I've done a 30 for 30 before. I could use something to break the staleness. And granted, listeners, I'm recording this on the 4th of August. I have written one poem of the four that I'm supposed to have done so far. And that's okay. I have been that far behind and caught up before. I'm not concerned about it. But I also just kind of went, all right, this is low stakes. Like, the worst thing that'll happen is I embarrass myself in front of my poet friend who I don't think has ever read my poetry. So, eh. But it's just challenging myself. Even if I just end up scribbling some stuff out in 15-minute increments here and there. Just that act of doing something, I'm hoping, breaks me out of this. I don't even want to say it's a rut, but it's like a stupor of sorts. Hmm. Gotcha. And then I think about this project and I kind of go, all right, well, sometimes we're hit or miss, whatever, but we have been able to keep it sustainable because we have it on the schedule that we do, which I was adamant about on day one. You were, I remember, you were like, maybe once a week? And I was just like, no, twice a month. <laughs> Indeed. This is why, this is why Night Vale was so well done because they were able to do like once on the first, once on the 15th. That's it. That's our schedule. No, and you're not wrong. And I can look back and, and totally admit my eyes were bigger than my stomach. I, I think about the, uh, the shows I listen to that are weekly and they are almost exclusively people who have gotten to the point where they're paid to do this. And so it's that, that ultimate podcaster goal of, sustainable income uh based off the show and it's like yeah if this was my job there would be one of these a week plus some sort of bonus content but it's my project and the thing i do with you and my my something more than a hobby but it's not my job yeah and i mean the weekly podcast the weekly podcasts i know that aren't people being paid to do it at least not as their main source of income are like jay and miles explain the x-men Sure, which yeah. they don't which they do no production work on they they do the reading they do their notes but they have a producer and they who edits and cuts everything together they have an artwork person who handles doing their weekly the weekly like images so it's like even though they're on a patreon it's not their either their main sources of income but they don't do a third of the stuff that makes this 
one to two thirds of the stuff that makes this time consuming. I think of Gilmore Ball Z, which is literally just like a married couple that watches one episode of Gilmore Girls and one to two episodes of Dragon Ball Z Kai a week. They come together with like some notes that they took when they were watching it, and then they talk for a half hour to an hour. And there's almost nothing else involved. There are a couple of audio drops, and that's it. And those are both weekly, but both of those are way less time overhead. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, you're right, man. Um, and I think this has been a lovely bit of behind the pod. <laughs> <laughs> so we just spent 10 minutes talking about um, podcasts, so let's get into our first topic, which happened happily enough. It's taken us 30 episodes. <laughs> but, uh, uh, we're here to give I'm you, not mad about it. We're here to give you some sweet podcast content. Oh. <laughs> Jesus. If I can make Andy laugh, listeners, that's that's enough for me. Like if I, if I can just get Andy to laugh, I'm I'm calling it a good episode. Uh, so <laughs> this is love hate relationship. Our format is we like to think fairly straightforward. After a few minutes of banter up top, we uh, do one segment where one of us talks about something that uh, we deeply love. The other of us. Uh, we'll then do a segment where we talk about something we deeply hate, and then we take a relationship question from you, our dear listeners who are kind enough to write in and tell us your problems. Uh, and so, yeah, to get started, Andy, you alluded to this. This is our 30th episode, and finally, after 30 episodes, we've gotten to the point where a love segment is going to be on this podcast is talking about my favorite podcast. <laughs> so the title might be confusing. Uh, the podcast in question to which I'm referring is House to Astonish. It is a deeply niche show, but uh, as always, I always like to start my start my segments off. Uh, Andy, I asked you to do a little homework on this one and actually listen to an episode of House to Astonish. So my query to you, my friend, as someone who just listened to it for the first time recently, what'd you think? I found it pretty enjoyable, but it definitely is not for me. And that kind of surprised me. Um, Interesting. I liked okay. it. I, I, I want to just make that clear. I did like it. The episode I listened to was uh, a couple months old, I believe. Um, they were talking about uh, how the, uh, DC was launching a series of Sandman comic books, the Sandman universe. Uh, they also reviewed Mira number one. And talked about um, just a whole bunch of comic book related news. And like, mm -hmm. I like that. I, I definitely appreciate comic book news. But at the same time, it was like, I, I don't know. I wouldn't like what they said was enjoyable. And they reminded me a bit of us with some of the more bantery, shticky kind of bits, to be perfectly <laughs> honest. Um <sighs> But there was just something where it's like, you know what it is? I, I can't listen to a comic book review on an audio medium because I have tried listening to other like comic book review podcasts and it just doesn't work. And the exception is Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, which I, I dearly love. They've kind of hit how to do that in my mind and actually break down a comic book. 
but I think that's partly because it's the X-Men, and of course I'm going to listen to the X-Men, but also, like, it's a bunch of older comic books. Like, Mira number one, when, when the guys at House to Astonish reviewed it, was a brand new comic. And, mm-hmm. th- like, for some reason, I can't listen to, like, a modern comic review in a purely audio sense. So... Yeah, like I, I absolutely enjoyed them. I think if you're a comic book nerd, they are very much worth checking out. But as a comic book nerd, they weren't for me. But they're your favorite. Yeah, this is my favorite podcast, bar none. And it's uh, let, let me let me give a little background. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about just some stuff about it. And then we can have our back and forth. Yeah. As well as a little segment we've uh, prepared for all of you to hear. So, as you alluded to, House to Astonish is a comic book... I hesitate to even call it a comic book review podcast, because it's really just... They do a new segment. They do they do some reviews. They do another segment. Like it's, But it's not really... It's more like a deep dive discussion podcast. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah, so uh, we got over a little a little over ten years ago. Uh, House to Astonish uh, was st- was started by two Scottish lawyers, uh, or at least I think they're both lawyers, uh, named Paul O'Brien and Al Kennedy. Both had previously contributed to some fanzines, and Paul, uh, for anyone who was into like comic book internet stuff uh, in the late '90s, early 2000s, back when like GeoCities was a thing. <laughs> Um, he's probably best known for a late 90s, early 2000s blog that he has disavowed wildly called the X-Axis, in which he tried to map the entire continuity of all the X-Books for Marvel. He failed. He's the <laughs> yeah. first to admit that he failed, because X-Men continuity is a monster. <laughs> it's a mystery! It's a mystery wrapped in a riddle inside an enigma! Um, but that's kind of like how they got their foot into this. They've both been reading comics their entire lives. They have read pretty much everything. The show itself is pretty bare bones. It's two guys on a microphone talking about comic book news and solicitations. They review one or two books, um, usually that they think are worth talking about for some reason or another. That's not to say they review good books. That's not to say they review bad books. They review books... I think they're pretty upfront about saying these are books that we think will be interesting to talk about. So I have seen them review things like Mira, which is a pretty straightforward, this is a DC spinoff book that maybe a lot of people aren't going to pay a lot of attention to. And then I've also seen them review weird indie, like I've never heard of this company before, this is the first issue of what is probably going to be a strange mini by some artist who did like two backups in a Marvel story five years ago. And this is the first thing we've seen to the, from them since kind of things that you are just completely off the beaten path. And they kind of do the whole swath of it. But it's always stuff that they think will generate an interesting discussion. Sure. My favorite part of the show is at the end, where they do a segment called The Official Handbook of the Official Handbook of the Marvel Universe. No, your audio did not cut out. That is literally <laughs> what it's titled. 
wherein they take an actual copy of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, flip to a page with a character who is very, like, little known or hasn't been seen in a very long time, hasn't been used, and they tr- they go over them, they go over their background and, like, what the essentials of the character are and try and come up with a pitch for an idea of how they could be used now. And... I love this segment because I will not only... Most of the time they pick characters that I've never even heard of. Uh, I think on their most recent episode, they talked about a speedster character from old Two-Gun Kid comics, the old cowboy comics back in the day. A character who might arguably be the first like super-powered speedster in comic book history used in like before the original flash and they take they they talked about this whole timeline for him where he was basically this nothing character who was easily outsmarted by the two gun kid and they came up with a really interesting pitch where they they mention the artic, the entry mentions that he like retires after serving his prison sentence and moves to Canada and they come up with a pitch wherein he helps a young, recently on-his-own, mutated James Howlett. And I'm like, that's an amazing book. This random-ass cowboy comic speedster meets, fights, and a little bit helps a an adolescent Wolverine. Yeah, okay, I can fucks with this. <laughs> like, half the time they come up with these pitches, and I'm like, yes, this is better than half the shit that is in the actual Marvel solicitations. And I've said before, I love fans. I think when fans, real, real loving fans, come up with concepts or talk about stuff, I I am always into it. So this podcast that has zero production value, that is literally just two giant nerds who have read everything, getting together in like one of their offices sitting around a microphone and releasing an episode every, like, three to six weeks, which is about how often they do an episode. It's just—it's literally just kind of like, okay, when do we have time? We both have, like, we both have families and kids and full-time jobs, and we just need to aggregate enough reading and material to talk about and meet up and, okay, we're... We're good. We're good. Okay, let's release this episode. It's been five weeks since our last one. It's been three weeks since our last one. <laughs> right, which you just just to tie it back into our behind the pod discussion, like I'm on their website right now, and they uh, they have on the website that they post every two weeks. And even even reading that, I was looking at their like dates on the each episode, and I was like, wait, a month, a month, a little under a month. That's not every two weeks, but... Yeah, um, it's funny. I think it was either last year or the year before they did their like year-end episode, uh, which was their 10th anniversary, and they go, I think this year we released eight episodes in like 12 or 13 months. We should probably try and do better next year. <laughs> Don't you think? Yeah, we should probably try and do better next year. I think they were every two weeks when they first started out. I know at one point there yeah. was a bit of a hiatus that they were on. I think because they both had kids right around the same time. Which will do it, yeah. But Yeah, yeah. And then they came back and they're just like, 
we'll release them when we release them. And and here's the thing. Is that good for building a McElroy type of brand? Absolutely not. Like you they they do like one or two live shows a year, usually at the Edinburgh Comic Book Comic Con. And they do it with like I think another couple of Scottish comic book podcasts. They do they like join up and do a live show once a year. But other than that, they have like t-shirts they sell on a Redbubble store and that's it. They don't make any money off of this. In fact, they probably lose money. They do it purely because it's fun for them. Oh boy, now you're fighting for the joy of it. For the sheer unholy fucking delight of it! They have never tried to really do any audience building, which sounds weird, but I... I this is a case where... Go ahead. I was just saying, there's, there's, there's a respectability to that. Well, it's like, this is a case where you have, you, you have people doing a creative project, and they are... How do I put this? This is a love of a thing that any one of you could... If you Google House to Astonish right now, you look them up in your... In your Apple Podcast or your Stitcher, Spotify, wherever, you'll find it. You can listen to the most recent episode. You can listen to the you can listen to all 158 episodes that are up there at time of recording. I don't know that I would recommend them. Honestly. You say they're not for you, Andy. And I appreciate your saying that. Because they don't handhold. They don't like try let Jay and Miles will stop in the middle of a discussion and go, just so that we can all recap here, this character, the last time we saw them was this, this, and this. Last time we talked about this was in this episode. They'll take those moments to pause and talk to you. They will put stuff in their show notes. They try really hard to cultivate a, a sense of, this is accessible to everyone. I'm not going to say House to Astonish. House to Astonish does not have an attitude of, if you don't, if you can't follow along with our discussion, fuck you and turn it off. That's not their attitude at all. Yeah. Their attitude, their attitude is one hundred percent. We'll talk about stuff, and that's going to be it. And we'll talk about stuff at the level that we are at. It just so happens that they are at an intensely high level of background and knowledge and understanding about comic book storylines and history of the industry and characters. And they and and I will straight up listen to them, and I will write something down and be like, okay, look up this book, look up this character, look up this thing or this thing or this thing. And I've gone and done that, and I have discovered other books that way. I have discovered other creators that way. But it's not because they sat there and went, okay, everyone out there, I want you to look up these these books by these creators. I want you to look up this story run from this character. It's literally... Oh, so then when this character came out in 95, written by this person, I thought that they were just terrific. And looking back on it, I reread them recently in preparation for this new issue, and I went, you know what, this still holds up. And that's it. They don't handhold you. They just kind of have their discussion, and you take from it what you will. And I love that. That takes me, that takes me back to sitting in like college lecture halls with really advanced thinkers and writers and creators who just kind of have a conversation 
And they're not trying to give a ton of background. They're not necessarily worried about the audience. If the audience is interested, great. If they're not, cool. If you want, and if they want to go back and learn some stuff here, awesome. And that's what these guys are doing. They're just, you know, two extensive fans of the genre. And I, I love that. But that is really hard for some. That's really intimidating for some. That's more work than a lot of people are willing to put in. And I'm going to admit, there are times when I come up with five or six things I want to research and I just go, I don't have time to research all of this. I'm just going to let it be. But I love that. I don't know why. I do. I just, there's something about it that just speaks to me. And that to me is like, that's how you know when you sit there and say, I I don't know what it is, but I love this. It's like me last time talking about meatloaf. I don't know why I love that uh, part of Paradise by the Dashboard Light, but I love it. Like that, you, you say that, and I go, "Yes, absolutely," and I'm happy for you. Your 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 heart grew three sizes the day you got into House to Astonish. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so I want to I, mean... I, I want to ask you. Um, do they regularly talk about news of the industry or did I just happen to find the one random episode where they did that? Because like half of the episode they were talking about, uh, coming from image expo and they were talking about, oh, so-and-so's they, they were like breaking down all these X books that were supposed to come out and they were like projecting kind of how they thought they would do and oh well that artist never meets their deadlines so that one's going to be rocky like like is that a regular part of it or did i just listen to the one where they got into that no that's very regular okay. they will anytime anytime there is news like that the episode after a big convention where things get announced they always you know take time and part of their news section is going to be a discussion of that. And sometimes their discussion is, well, Jonathan Hickman is writing everything under the sun, and we'll see how that goes, deadline-wise. <laughs> and sometimes it's a very deep discussion into, okay, so I've read these two books by this new creator. I know they also created this, and... I'll be really interested to see what they do with this. I think that this will be interesting. And the other guy will go, uh, I have my doubts about it. And here's why. Because back then, uh, on this book, I thought that that was kind of atrocious. Which was really sad, because from the book before that, they had seen so much promise. And I wonder how much DC editorial had to do with that. Oh, probably a whole lot. That's, it seemed like that was their whole discussion about G. Willow Wilson stuff. Like... We love G. Willow Wilson's writing, and it'd be great if, you know, editorial would just let her get on with it. Got it. But it'll be these... That, but yeah, every episode, if there's stuff to talk about, their episode right after Comic-Con, you know, they very briefly talked about the TV and movies. Like, so much so, I think Al was like, okay, we have to talk about these, and Paul was like, please don't talk about them. I don't <laughs> want to talk about them. Let's just talk about the comic books. But then, you know, they also talked about all the comic books come, that were announced and discussed at Comic-Con, which, I don't know about you, a lot of my media sources didn't. Sure. Yeah, and that's, like, that's the thing that I think I walked away liking from it the most. I, I could listen to a news show that was just about, like, the news of the comics industry. Um, mm -hmm. And I, like, I, I really did enjoy that. And the... 
the predictions and the the deep dive into the actual people making the comic books uh maybe even more than the comics books themselves i thought that was really interesting and i really liked that aspect of the show yeah i feel like the comic vine podcast did that uh a few years ago but that one folded because that website got purchased by GameSpot, and GameSpot was like okay your comic book articles do okay they tend to do they they don't tend to do as well as our movie and video game tie-in articles and your podcast does well for a comic book podcast but does not do well compared to like all of our video game podcasts so we're gonna fold you what's up bros my name's sad day and yeah, I mean, and that was that was a couple of years ago. Um, I used to listen to the Comic Vine podcast, and that very much was a okay. Here are the solicitations. Here are the new books. Here's what I read. Here's what I read here, and it came out. And they would do the show like every Monday, and they would review the books that had come out the fall the previous Wednesday, and they would just have like brief discussions over all the notable books that had come out. And it was a really fun show. I really enjoyed it, but because it was actually this is this is an irony here. Because these were people who worked full-time for Comic Vine, when Comic Vine got purchased by GameSpot, they were working full-time for GameSpot, and then GameSpot just kind of went, uh, not working for us, do other stuff. And, like, one of the Comic Vine, one of the two guys on that podcast left and started a new website where he just kind of blogs and talks about, I think, general pop culture stuff, and the other one still writes for GameSpot, writing about music and comics and video games, but he writes. He doesn't podcast about them. So what are you left with? And then House to Astonish, these guys who make no money off of this, really, they've been been doing it for 10 years, admittedly, intermittently. And admittedly, I don't know if they ever had the audience, at least in the U.S., that Comic Vine did. Again, it's Scottish. Scottish as fuck. (laughs) Uh, But, yeah. But it's and so it's a it's a weird mixture there, you know, or a weird comparison. Yeah, I gotcha. No, I like I, I want to make it clear like this gets two thumbs up recommendations. And like the only thing is my thumb comes with the caveat of like it is entirely possible that even if you're a huge comic junkie, you're this isn't going to be for you but it is a good show it was a funny show i like the episode i listened to somehow we went from sandman to riffing about madonna to hulk and doctor strange and it was like there were moments where i totally laughed in there and enjoyed it and like it like i I can sit here and see why you love it so dearly um yeah so two thumbs up yay um so i wanted to close out this segment by uh essentially ripping them off (laughs) (laughs) Uh, imitation and flattery and all that i've been wanting to try this forever since i started listening to this podcast years ago so I, i explained it earlier they do the official handbook of the official handbook of the marvel universe i thought andy since you're a comic book nerd i'm a comic book nerd it might be fun to try and do the same thing briefly, but try to do this with a DC character. Sure. Uh, so the one that I recommended, uh, which we talked about it before we started recording, you didn't know a ton about, you knew some about, 
is the Ten-Eyed Man. So basic info on the Ten-Eyed Man. Uh, he is primarily a Batman villain. Uh, Philip Reardon, who served as a soldier in the U.S. Special Forces during the Vietnam War until he was honorably discharged after a grenade fragment hit him between the eyes. He later was, while working a job as a warehouse security guard, was knocked out by thieves who had planted a bomb to blow up that warehouse. When Batman arrived, uh, Reardon had recovered somewhat, but his vision was messed up. And mistaking Batman for one of the thieves, Reardon fought him. When he recognized Batman, the warehouse exploded and Reardon's retinas were burned, which impacted his war injury and blinded him permanently in his actual eyes. Later, an ophthalmologist named Dr. Engstrom performed a surgery on Reardon, connecting his optic nerves to sensory cells in his fingertips. Effectively, reinstating Reardon's sense of sight, but he can only see from his ten fingertips. So if this sounds Silver Age, this is very Silver Age. Well, not even even Silver Age, because, I mean, Vietnam, 80s and all that, but just, like, this is this is very... This feels very Silver Age. This feels very pulpy. Oh, and it absolutely is. And it's... And every Ten-Eyed Man story are, like... I don't think the Ten-Eyed Man ever appeared in the Adam West Batman, but he most definitely could have. Yeah. Uh, he would have been... Because he does the thing where his henchmen are, like, wearing eyeball logos on their, on their outfits, and he does vision-related crimes. And he's generally regarded as just one of the silliest, most ridiculous characters among Batman's rogues gallery. He had kind of fallen out of usage, especially, like, it it was used very, very intermittently uh, since his debut back in 1970 around Crisis on Infinite Earths. Crisis on Infinite Earths, dear God. Um, He was killed by the anti-monitor Shadow Demons... Uh, which reportedly was a specific request from Marv Wolfman, who wanted to put him among a list of characters that he wanted killed first. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. And then he hadn't been seen until the New 52, which you stated to me... You had read. I had not read this. So what's his usage in New 52? Uh, well, it's actually not even the New 52 specifically, but but 52 the comic, which was, okay. um, you know, the thing DC did for a year after one of the crises. I, I get them so confused. There's so many of them. But 52 was a comic series that was supposed to be like, it took place a year after this universal cataclysm and there was no Superman, no Wonder Woman, no Batman. The Ten-Eyed Man came into it in Batman's storyline towards the end of 52. Batman comes back and you find out like he's been more or less off trying to relearn how to become Batman for a year. Like he was he was kind of broken mentally, spiritually 
And so the Ten-Eyed Man is not Philip Reardon as best as I could tell. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, this is why this is so interesting. The fact that, like, this character just became something completely else. The Ten-Eyed Man in 52 was, like, the member of this secret tribe out in some desert. And the, the big culmination was they got Batman to like re-become Batman mentally and spiritually and whatnot by doing mm. a ceremony where, where a bunch of 10 eyed men showed up and then they all swung swords at him, mm. but they didn't kill him. They just like fixed him. So okay. that's the 10 eyed man. I thought we were going to talk about. And then like, you know, re- I, I, I read the articles and come to find out come to find out oh not only is that not the ten-eyed man but like that version of the ten-eyed man hasn't even been seen since so much mm-hmm. yeah and okay so i'm looking at this right here and in the new 52 he does come back he apparently has a storyline where he kidnaps a girl named jade who was under killer croc's protection uh, and then Batman, Killer Croc, and Jason Bard team up to stop him before he can sacrifice her to open an interdimensional portal. So what we've basically got is a character who, at his outset, was a campy, ridiculous, whatever villain. Uh, and in recent incarnations, has been a metaphysical tribe... And an interdimensional p- wizard? Pirate? Yeah, something. Yeah. Okay. So how do we take this this character? First of all, I'm going to suggest right off the bat, we need to take the Ten-Eyed Man out of Batman world and put him in... I'm interested in putting him together with maybe some of the more mystical characters. Sure. Some of the more magic users. As far as I know... Okay, so the Ten-Eyed Man looks to open an interdimensional portal. It sounds... But he's doing it via sacrifice. So we've definitely got occult stuff going on here. I kind of wonder if this Ten-Eyed Man, who is not Reardon, maybe is playing with time in some capacity. I see him maybe being started off as the basis for some kind of weird out there tribe out in the middle of time and now he's sitting here trying to maybe stop that ahead of time but he maybe makes it inevitable through the interdimensional time travel Hmm. is this too out there no because i think out there is what you need like the very first thing i um i thought with this guy is like his premise is that he has eyes in his fingertips Sure. But they're regular eyes. So so he's got 10 of them because he's got 10 fingertips, but they're just eyes. The very first thing I thought was like, okay, this guy needs to be able to see beyond what a regular person can see. I, I think about the character of Eye Boy 
from the X-Men who mm-hmm. has like a hundred eyes, his body's covered in eyes. And the thing that they did to make eye boy cool was he could see magic or he could like instantly read anything. He could, he could see body language. So the thing you need to do with 10 eyed man, I think is make him be able to see other dimensions, pure magic. And I think that's how he, he, goes down the road towards this metaphysical metadimensional cult we've got him going on is so so no to answer your question i don't i don't think that's too out there because i think he needs to be able to see stuff that's out there i i i think about animal man and Mm. i wonder if he becomes an animal man villain because animal man is one of the weirdest most metaphysical books dc ever put out true hmm Okay, so if we con- if we contextualize this as, I hesitate to make the ten-eyed villain a straightforward or the ten-eyed man a straightforward villain. Sure, I see Animal Man stumbling across Ten-eyed Man, trying to move between these portals. One of which he can see through, maybe with a thumb. So he does. Looks like he's hitchhiking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And animal, and he has to do terrible things to do this, like sacrifice a child. Maybe he has to burn down a village or b- destroy a dam or something else that seems plausible to a character as ridiculous as this. An animal man comes in trying to stop him, and they have their tussle. And finally, the ten-eyed man reveals that he's trying to stop the beginnings of some kind of world-ending tribe, but he can't see necessarily what the tribe is. And by the end of the story, it's discovered that the beings that he and Animal Man battle take inspiration from him back in time and form this cult that helps Batman, but also is kind of going to try and destroy the multiverse. Maybe, maybe... They've captured one of Anti-Monitor's shadow demons that killed the Crisis Ten-Eyed Man, and the whole story comes back around to them trying to stop them from using whatever powers the Anti-Monitor has to destroy universes. This is a world-ender book. Yeah. No, I, I dig it. I think I, I always love when these sort of characters pop up. Um and it's someone ridiculous that they managed to make cool and interesting and important. Um, so I, I love the the new direction of the Ten-Eyed Man. Time travel, <laughs> time travel with self-fulfilling prophecies is always interesting to me. It's, um, you know, it's John Connor by means of Animal Man. By means <laughs> of Grant Morrison. Yeah. Oh, shit. I would, read, I would read Grant Morrison's Terminator in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I guess that's the official handbook of the that's the official handbook of the Wikipedia page on the Ten-Eyed Man. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for indulging me, my friend. I've been wanting to do one of those uh, forever, and I think that it's a great blast doing it right here. No, of course that that was a hell of a lot of fun. I I, I think uh, I like doing bits with you. I like doing I like doing goat with you. And I will definitely, I will definitely do uh, more comic uh, retreads with you. Yeah, okay, I'm down. Yeah. Um, I don't want. We're 45 minutes in though, so I want to go ahead and give you a chance to do your segment. 
Well, I appreciate you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we also we we talk about things we love. We also talk about things we hate. And this is technically a retread of a hatred, but so for context, I I hate Charles Coke. I hate the Coke brothers. <laughs> um, and I I hate what they have done to Florida's film incentives. So for a little context, um, back when we did our kind of preview, can we really make this podcast work episodes? This was something I, I discussed with Alex, but that episode never really got released. So it's kind of a retread, but kind of not. I'm not mad at you for reusing research. Do you have any idea how many papers I wrote in college using reused research? (laughs) Uh, I'm guessing a lot yeah um so So go for it i'm into it so so to to sum up a a whole bunch of things for the layman um film incentives are government supplied loans basically the the whole concept of a film incentive it's a state by state thing and a state pays movie studios a certain amount of money to use their state to film in, you know, hence the incentive. It's basically, it's not paying money so much as like, we won't charge you extra taxes to come here and work in our state, which, you know, tax breaks and, and moving along permits and waiving fees that would normally be required. And exactly shit like that. Exactly. And, and each state can operate these on their own level which gets me into Florida. Now, now Florida used to be third in the nation. It was one of like 10 different states that would build themselves as Hollywood East. But for Florida, there was actually some merit to that. You know, it's, it's a tropical location. There's lots of beach stuff. You're not going to be able to film anything mountainy, but you know, maybe you don't need to. And, and Florida used to be, a major player in the film industry until the Koch brothers came in. And so for anyone who doesn't know about the Koch brothers, uh, Charles and David Koch are libertarian. How would you describe them other than monsters? Uh, um, like, like they are, they are the architects. Yeah, I mean, they're the architects of the American libertarian model, which yeah. is to say, um, I, I always try and make this distinction, but, you know, there, there's, a, there's the political philosophy of libertarianism, which goes back to the 17th century. Um, American libertarianism, as basically molded by the Koch brothers, is essentially just... Uh, how do I put this? Corporate supremacy yeah. and, under the guise of personal freedoms. Does that make sense? No, it does. And like for my sci-fi for my sci-fi fans, think about Blade Runner. Think about <laughs> think about Alien. Think about when Wayland Utani was like the the primary power on Earth, despite the fact that it was a company, not a nation. Like like that is kind of what the Koch brothers would see as the, the, the way the future should go. And one could argue the way we're going already. Welcome to Wayland Utani. Hmm. 
Um, so behind the bastards, which is Robert Evans's delightful podcast where he talks about the worst people in humanity has two episodes mm-hmm. about Charles Koch. Um, mm-hmm. and it is titled Charles Koch, the Luke Skywalker of rich people. It is a <laughs> hilarious and delightful listen. And he goes into the man in much greater detail than we would be able to hear. So off the bat, I'm, I'm going to recommend for the second time on this show, going and listening to an episode of behind the bastards. Yeah. Um, but as quickly as I can, like, like Charles Koch is a libertarian monster. He is a exceedingly rich man who was born into an exceedingly rich family and somewhere along the line realized if I give out a bunch of tax break or uh, if I give out a bunch of like charity money, I can do the math and I won't have to pay as much taxes. So I'm going to go out and be a philanthropic entrepreneur, but really it's because it's cheaper than not. That's that's the kind of man he is. He uh, he is an oil mogul, um, as well as a um, philanthropist, and like he's an oil mogul in that his company basically pioneered gas refining back in the seventies, and mm-hmm. you like like they talk about this in the Behind the Bastards episode, but he is you can draw a direct line to him causing the deaths of many people through criminal mm-hmm. negligence or other other nefarious things. The, the the man is a monster. The man is a bastard. The the man yeah. makes me ashamed that I ever briefly considered libertarianism a viable political <laughs> ideology because you know my parents were republican and i kind of grew out of that but i grew out of that in the way where like i took baby steps and i went from republicanism to libertarianism being like oh it's the best of both worlds um oh andrew and come to come to <laughs> realize that's really not the case oh my sweet summer child what do you know about fear mm. i mean again i I'm just like, with the Coke-branded libertarianism, uh, I again, I always feel the need to split hairs on it, which might sound dickish, but if you read, like, Penn Jillette, who is a libertarian, and is a little bit of a douche, but not, like, anywhere this level, like, Penn Jillette will say shit like, my brand of libertarianism, which is, he admittedly has a more academic type of libertarianism. He's like, my brand of libertarianism says that if there is a way to do something without government interference or without infringing on personal liberty, do it that way. If there is no way to accomplish something without those things, fine. That's what's considered reasonable government. There is a branch of libertarianism that is willing to admit to that and cop to that. It's just not Coke libertarianism. It's just not American Libertarian Party, which the Cokes largely fund. You know? Yeah. So you telling me you you were ashamed that you ever considered libertarianism. Don't get me wrong, I'm very happy you didn't go with libertarianism because I have my own problems with libertarianism. But don't beat yourself up. Anyone out there who, you know, ascribes to libertarian ideals, we're not telling you you're a piece of shit. We're telling you this is the stuff that's going on behind the scenes 
of the American libertarian movement, it's worth looking into. Yeah, and I don't think it's unfair to say, like, Charles Koch is to libertarianism as Joseph Stalin was to communism. Like... Okay, I can fucks with that. Yeah, so that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm the idea I'm putting out in there. So so I've talked about film incentives. I've talked about Charles Koch. How do these two things go together? Well, sure. as I said, Florida used to be one of the major players, especially on the East Coast, with a, a, a film program, and I'm going to link to a article by uh, from Deadline, which is from. Uh, October 21st, 2016, and it's titled How the Power Broker Koch Brothers Are Killing the Florida Film Business. Um, and it just, just, so, so Florida's film incentives back in 2010 were totaling $224 million in tax credits. And Charles Koch and the Americans for, hum- Americans for Prosperity um, advocacy group, which was created by David and Charles Koch, uh, lobbied on the Florida government to basically stop adding to this amount of money. Mm-hmm. And, and fun fact, in my notes, I put Friends for Humanity. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the Friends of Humanity is from the X-Men, and it's, it's yeah. literally a bigot anti-mutant hate group. So in, in my brain, these two things are close enough together that I confuse them. How many comic book references can we throw into one episode? Right? <laughs> um, but I, 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 I digress. So the Koch brothers are using their lobbying powers and money to basically, the best way I can break it down is... Florida had 242 million in 2010 and that money was dedicated to tax credits for the film program for people to come and film in Florida. And the Koch brothers basically came in to the um, house of representatives and to the Florida government and basically said, let's not put any more money in period. And so you know, over 10 years, that money whittles away and whittles away and whittles away. And, you know, film is pretty expensive. So it took about six, seven years for all of a sudden the pot to to run empty, as it were. Mm-hmm. At the same time, Georgia was, you know, working to start its own film incentive programs and blew up and and is a as of now is hollywood east it's bigger than hollywood more films are made in georgia now than anywhere else in the country yeah and and so like why did the Koch brothers do this why 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 did they care enough and i i talked about this in our our the original time the practice episode like the 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 layman end result is they figured we don't need to be spending this money on film. We've got the theme park tourism board bringing in money. We've got toll systems. Why are we going to bother um, making it easier for people to film in Florida? It doesn't get us anything. And that sucks. That, that, that deeply sucks for, for me and for so many other 
creatives in the industry like like you go to universal studios and anybody who's been there probably knows what i'm talking about you can like you can go to the actual studios you can go stand in line for the roller coasters and see all these plaques of like you know the adventures of superboy was filmed here and some ronald reagan movie was filmed here and you know, even just think back to Nickelodeon. Think back to uh, what was the game show where they splatted people? Uh, which one? Double Dare, Slime Time Live. I think it was Double uh, Dare. Like, like that was filmed on location at the Nickelodeon Hotel at Universal Studios, and that was a sure. show. Yeah. Um. And and just I, I I brought up the case of like, well, Andy, why don't you just move to Georgia? I don't want to have to move to Georgia just to do the thing I want. It, 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 it bothers me that like Florida had a film program and for no other reason than it wasn't directly lining Charles Koch's coffers. He decided to gut it and he decided to use his influence to, you know, directly attack my career to the point where like i have to move to california or i have to move to georgia or just deal with the fact that like i don't i don't make tv and movies i, I make commercials for corporations um mm-hmm. and i mean it, it bothers me it 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 personally very much upsets me that that's the reality you know, the thing, part of the thing that sparked me wanting to re-talk about this, there were a number of things. I, I had listened to that Koch Brothers episode of Behind the Bastards. Um, but another thing was, you know, recently Georgia has passed an abortion law. Or, or for, forgive me if I'm misspeaking, they're either, they're either talking about doing it or they've already done it. Uh, I'm going to cite just another article, uh, this one from May 28th, 2019, and it's titled Netflix threatens to leave Georgia if abortion law stands. Netflix is trying to pull out over this. Um, I know for a fact, um, shit, what's her name? Uh, famous comedian. Anyway, I know, I know for a fact projects are leaving the state of Georgia and trying to take a stand against this abortion ban, which they see as a, you know, vile and awful thing to put into legislature. So for the first time in like six, seven years, we're sitting here being like, Oh, Oh, Georgia might not be Hollywood anymore. Oh, 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 all the, all the film projects might leave Georgia. I wonder where they'd go. Maybe North Carolina, maybe Louisiana, oh, maybe Florida, but no, they're not going to go to Florida because Florida, as of time of recording, hasn't done anything to bring back their their own film incentives, and like that's the name of the game. People are going to go film where it is most cost-effective for them to film, and it, it irks me to sit here and just know for a fact that, like, it's not going to be here. Yeah, I mean, it's a big reason why Vancouver is so popular. Yeah. 
it's and it's funny because uh, if you fly into the Asheville airport where I live, Asheville, North Carolina, they have a whole little segment there that's like, here are films that were that were done here in Western Car- North Carolina, and I I remember walking through it, and I always recognize most of the movies. The only one that I can remember off the top of my head was Dirty Dancing. And also, I think, like, one or two of the Hunger Games movies, like, their outdoor woodsy scenes were shot up in the mountains here. Um, but film in North Carolina is not a big thing. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in Atlanta, Georgia, I mean, everyone thinks it was just The Walking Dead. But the fact is, the number of movies that were filmed there in Atlanta... It was Stranger Things. It was all the Marvel movies. It it it's like like fun. Do do a little thing next time you're sitting in a movie theater or just have something on. You know, wait till the end of the credits. See if a Georgia Peach pops up at the end because odds are it's gonna. Yeah. Um, no, and and yeah, I mean this is this is a pers- This is a personal one for me. You know, I don't I don't think we have an overwhelming number of other people who work in the film industry that listen to the show. If we do say like, like, let me know. I'd, I'd be fascinated. <laughs> let, me, let me talk shop with you. Let's trade business cards. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you you live in Orlando. Is is Orlando, New York City? No. Is or and it's not Hollywood, but. I mean, if Atlanta's doing this, there seems to be very little reason Orlando can't as well. And I get your frustration at not wanting to move and and with where things were once upon a time. I just... Is it terrible that I say I don't see a way out? Like, is that a terrible thing for me to admit to you? No, I don't think so. Is that hopeless? I mean, it's just... It, I, I'm not looking for one. No. Well, when I say a way out, I just mean like, I don't see a reversal on this ever, really, just because not unless there is a su- supreme overhaul of Florida legislature, and I don't see that happening, really. I mean, for as purple as the state gets called, it's pretty red a lot of the time, basically, except for in the major cities. Yeah. No, and I just mean, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if this would bother me if it hadn't been a thing ever before. Like if, if I didn't have a, a 65 year old sound guy, I work with a lot who would tell me of the glory days, you know, if, if you couldn't go to universal studios and, and see just a wall of plaques of projects, you know, there's still a couple things, uh, Lavos, which is the Latin version of the voice that films in Orlando that films at universal studios and, you know, the one film I have to my credit is Sharknado 3, um, which famously filmed at Universal. But that was sort of a under-the-table favor between NBC and the Sci-Fi Channel. Like, that wasn't, that wasn't because of Florida. It just worked out that way. So, no, I think, I think you're right, man. It's, at, at the end of the day, I can either move to wherever it's going or i can just become like more contented with what i actually do and and not uh pine to go work on a a tv project 
you know, for what it's worth, those are often hard and grueling and, you know, you, you run the risk of killing your love for the industry. So it's not like it's not a double-edged sword, but, but uh, we talk about things we hate and I, I hate that in a, in a not too separate alternate reality, like stranger things got filmed in Florida or something. And, and I got to go work on that instead of commercials for the YMCA. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and I think the thing that just, the thing that gives me sympathy rage for you uh, is you don't live in Wichita Falls, Texas. You know, you don't live in Synecdoche or Piscataway or one of the other technically a city, but it's really more of a town kind of places. You know, you live in a place with millions of inhabitants with millions of people coming in and out and not just for Disney and Universal, you know? And it does seem kind of ridiculous that that's what you're left with, you know? (sighs) Fucking Koch brothers. (laughs) Exactly. That's, that's really just the vibe I wanted to put out is fucking Koch brothers. It's well, and it's cause it's a, it's a ledger. It's, this probably this move probably saved them a few million dollars. When like I'm I'm just gonna okay who's the Koch brother who's worth less? Let's see. I think that's probably David. David Koch's net worth is forty three point nine billion dollars. Well, billion. Yeah. Charles Koch's net worth. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Charles and David Koch each have a net worth of $53.7 billion, according to Forbes. What the fuck? These are these are the men who realized it's cheaper to pay the families of victims who get mutilated or killed by our company than it is to overhaul our safety regulations and actually put everything up to code. So it really doesn't shock me that for a yeah. few uh, a lining of the pocket they would gut a state's film industry but let's talk about our question <laughs> <laughs> let's get me out of this before i really get mad i feel it well enough in me <laughs> okay okay you want to read this one or should i um i'll go ahead and do it okay hey guys i've got a roommate and relationship question for you I'm looking at heading back to school for my second year and I'm moving into a new apartment after needing to do the dorm thing for the first year. I was looking to move in with two friends of mine, one guy and one girl. I'm a guy too. Issue is that my girlfriend, who I've been with for about seven months now, it'll be eight by the time school starts, is really uncomfortable with me moving in with my friend who is a girl. There's no feelings involved here. We're all just friends. But my girlfriend has said she doesn't like the idea. She hasn't forbidden it or anything or made any threats that we haven't and we haven't had any actual fights. But she keeps saying she's uncomfortable with the idea. What do I do? So first thing we got to do is come up with a name. Is, is is the guy from Three's Company too dated for someone who is clearly younger than us? Uh, I mean, 
You mean John Ritter's character? Yeah. I'm trying to remember what John Ritter's character's name right. is. Right, and like even I have to look uh, it up. So. Yeah. No. Like. Okay. It was. It was Jack Tripper. Yeah. You know what? I'm down with it. Like. Jack Tripper, I, I don't even care, because John Ritter was a peach of a human being. Uh, it's very sad that he's gone now. So let's go ahead and Jack Ritter this up. Um, somehow, we can, let's see if we can work a Don Knotts reference into this at some point. Yeah. Okay, so Jack Ritter. Come and knock on our door. Come and knock on our door. What we have here... Uh, is a failure to communicate, actually, cliché as that is. Uh, do you want to get started with this, or shall I? I'm, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Okay. So, Jack, the way that I see it... I, first of all, I think that... I, I, I'm going to say I don't think there's anything wrong with you moving in with your friend who's a girl... I don't think that is the problem here at all. And I also don't think the problem is necessarily that your girlfriend is uncomfortable. I think the problem is that the two of you haven't actually had a conversation about this. You haven't discussed it. You haven't communicated about it at all. You know, like if you, if you wrote in your question that your girlfriend said she's uncomfortable and has forbidden you from doing it. That would be one thing. Or, that would be one thing. She hasn't done that. You two, you say yourself, the two of you haven't actually had any fights about it. Um, I'm certainly not recommending that you pick a fight. I'm not. I think you should be prepared for a fight, but I don't think you should pick one. I do think you need to confront her. I think you need to have a conversation because, okay, here's the deal. You're not planning on breaking up anytime soon. I, I, you're not suggesting you are, you do mention how long you two have been together. It's not an insignificant amount of time. It's also not a tremendously huge amount of time, especially when, no offense, you're as young as the two of you are. Uh, I'm assuming if you're going into your second year of college, you're probably 19 or 20. Um, and I'm assuming she's probably the same age, give or take. You two need to talk about this. It's not enough that she just goes, I'm uncomfortable dot 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 it sounds maybe i'm reaching as though she's expecting you to act on your discomfort or on her discomfort and she's expecting you to pick up i'm uncomfortable and for you to go oh okay i'll find another roommate or oh okay i'll move somewhere else or oh okay i'll go back into a dorm i don't know and you don't know either and that's the confrontation that needs to happen it sounds like she's just going these are my feelings and there's nothing following it up yeah so i there are a couple things kind of talking around it that i i i feel the need to pick apart maybe this is something you haven't considered um you know first of all i want to know how closer how close of friends are you with the girl and what i mean by that is are are you guys childhood friends did you meet in a class last semester and she's cool? Like, I, I feel like that affects maybe your girlfriend's feelings. And I, I mean, I also just kind of, there are, there, there are a couple things I want to break down about those. Like, 
I also agree there is nothing wrong with having a roommate of the opposite sex. And I don't think that there is anything about having a roommate of the opposite sex that guarantees you will ever do anything with them. Mm-hmm. That said, it is my experience that you will see them naked at some point. <laughs> they will see you naked at some point. You will hear when they have sex in their room, if they're of that proclivity. They will hear you and your girlfriend having sex in your room, if you're of that proclivity. Um, and I just, I wonder if, if, if that's part of what your girlfriend is, is worried about. You know, either you may be developing feelings for this friend, or just the, 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 the overlap of what I just described, you know, I, I never had a female roommate except for my wife. If you're going to go ahead and count that. Um, and I don't believe you have either Alex, right? No, I, I had an older sister and I have my wife. Sure. I've only ever lived with women named Stephanie. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, so we're, we're coming from this of, maybe an even more unqualified place than, than usual in that regard. But, you know, I, I had a a couple of dear friends who all lived in a house together and it was one guy and three girls, uh, or no, I'm sorry, one guy and two girls. Um, and I mean, no, none of them ever got involved with anybody in their own house. All the things I just mentioned did happen. Like there are, there are several amusing stories of the walls being thin. Um, sure. But yeah, like we don't know if you've talked to your girlfriend and I'm just, I'm pulling at threads of things that if you haven't, this might be what she's worried about. This might be why she's uncomfortable. Just purely pragmatically. I, I, I do wonder if, getting another roommate or living situation is an option. You know, that's, that's why it depends on if this female friend grew up in the house next door from you, or if they were just somebody who is cool and looking for a house, because you're, you're going to have a lot of different roommates in college, but above all else, no matter what else you do, I do agree with Alex that you need to have a fully fledged, fleshed out conversation with your girlfriend about the issue yeah. and about her fears and about maybe why you don't think they are, <laughs> don't use this word, but necessarily valid. Uh, let's say why you don't share them with Yeah, her. That's, that's a better way of, 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 uh, of doing that. Yeah, because, you know, it's entirely possible you two are coming from different spaces. You know, there are there are people who see zero difference when it comes to living with a person of your room uh, of the of a sexual identification that falls into the categories you might be romantically interested in. There are people who absolutely feel that way. Maybe it's because they grew up that way. Maybe they have the opinion that, you know, there are people who grow up very conservatively and think a guy and a girl should never live together unless they're married. Even if they're dating, even if they're not dating, they should not live together. It is inappropriate. Maybe your girlfriend's old-fashioned like that. Maybe she has trust issues. 
maybe something has happened in her past uh, or she has some kind of personal insecurity and she is afraid of something. Maybe. I, I don't know. And if you know, you didn't tell us. And if you don't know, you should know. That's the thing is just find out the source of this. Um, you know, if it's the kind of thing where she, I mean, I don't, I, I don't like to think that it'll come down to ultimatums and she'll go, if you move in to this living situation, I will dump you. And, um, and real quick, I do want to say it is a point in her favor that she hasn't done that yet. Sure. Yeah. It's, and that, but that's the thing. You don't, you don't fucking know. <laughs> like, um, so find that out. If if it comes to that, I mean, you make your own calls, calls Jack, uh, but I don't like ultimatums. I don't think they are indicative of healthy relationships. Um, if she has some concern that you feel is, you know, potent enough uh, that you would look for another living situation, like Andy said, it could be a possibility. And if that is a viable option, I, I don't think you should write it off. But you, I don't think you want a relationship where your partner being uncomfortable is expressed as I'm uncomfortable and the expectation is you will pick up that discomfort and bend your life around it without a conversation and without something detailed there. You know, you guys are closing in on a year together i don't know how serious this is but at that point it's and to me andy like it doesn't matter if the person's a childhood friend he's had forever for me and the way that i think i'm like it is completely possible for all parties to be mature and respectful and for nothing untoward to happen it just can't go unsaid you know sure sure and i just more meant like the only reason the the relationship with the female roommate matters is the degree of which it is easier or not to explore them not being your roommate yeah yeah so what i'm gonna what i'm gonna leave you with jack is just have the conflict Hopefully it won't be a fight, but if it is a fight, fight fair, fight clean. You know, don't, I always think it's okay to fight. You just can't be an asshole. You know, don't, don't get personal. Don't get passive aggressive. Listen, 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 and respond appropriately and keep your, Keep your points to, you know, where you're coming from in a valid way. Don't ever attack. But have the confrontation and find out what's what's getting to her. Because it could be this is something where you two have a conflict. She reveals some, you know, some insecurity or something from her past or some lack of trust even. And the two of you talking about that and working that out could be a really good stepping stone in your relationship. Or it could be the thing that breaks it. I don't know. But I don't think if, if you are too uncomfortable with conflict to engage her on this, and if she's too uncomfortable with conflict to engage with this, this is not going to be a relationship worth having. So have the conflict and make it so. 
Yeah, to specifically answer your question, what do I do? What you do is have a deep, actual conversation with your girlfriend. And by the end of that conversation, one of three things will happen. Either either she will do something that makes you reconsider your relationship. You will resolve it and everyone will actually be at peace with the situation or you will you know be looking at a different rooming situation it sounds like there are options you know you haven't uh given mr furley the first check yet and there's your there's your Don Knotts reference <laughs> <laughs> oh thank you andrew thank but, you so much uh, yeah man talk talk to your girl she sounds she sounds on the level at least as much as you told us and you know seven seven eight months is it's on a sliding scale of what that means but it it mattered enough to you to clarify that which means i think the relationship matters to you so sure talk to her man and uh do everything alex said talk properly talk fairly and mm-hmm. you know, let us let us know if you're doing a Three's Company spinoff or uh, what what the what the situation winds up being. So absolutely, that has been love hate relationship. If you have a relationship question, be it with a roommate, girlfriend, landlord, pet, coworker, whatever, and you want our perfectly unqualified advice for that, you can send those questions into love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com where we promise we'll read them. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or even TuneIn Radio. Hey, Mom. Uh, we would also love it, absolutely love it, if you reviewed us on any or all of those. Uh, you can tweet us at LHRPod. That's L-H-R-P-O-D with your questions, and you can follow us there to keep up with new episodes. That's right. Um, today we, we talked about filming, but we didn't talk about movies. If you actually want to hear me talk about movies, I have another podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson that is called Cult Fiction. You can find it at all the places Alex just said you can find Love-Hate Relationship, or you can find it on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. And if you, for some reason, want to follow me, Andy Bowell, I am at JoVoCop2113. And I'm at A underscore X underscore r-u-i-z on both twitter and instagram thank you for listening all uh and please as always tell your enemies (laughs) 